the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Pretty hearts, we shine the light on whatever's worst. Perfection is a disease of a nation. Pretty hearts, we shine the light on whatever's worst. Try to fix something, but you can't fix what you can't see. It's the soul that needs a surgery. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside where we bring you the latest news in science and tech. Good evening, I am your host Bridget Libere. Now they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But according to psychology there is more to the beauty perspective than what meets the eye. And scientifically speaking the brain is biologically wired to view certain physical elements such as beauty alongside with one's culture one's experience and overall uh, and the overall view on life and as well as um how we live in society and where people are coming from and in a world where we are constantly looking or seeking for um you know instant gratification I mean that we we live in a world that really just wants uh, that seeks us to find things that will make us feel good almost immediately but that's where makeup comes in that's why fashion comes in and that's exactly what we are going to be talking about today we use foundation to even out our skin tones and then we layer up beneath that foundation some concealer to hide all of the impact imperfections and then we use an eyeliner to make our eyes symmetrical a dash of blush shimmer and a bronzer here and there just to make our look really um you know perfect but now on today's show we are going to delve into a, an even deeper and more sensitive issue about our beloved cosmetics and the many many hands that are involved in making them so to, in tonight's show we are going to look into the uh, ingredients which are used to make our cosmetic products and later on we are going to drop a proverbial bomb on the beauty and cosmetics industry and let out or let you in on the dark side and the shady side of the makeup industry so we are going to be tackling all of those issues later on in the in the show so stick around for more on that but uh tonight we have in the studio tonight uh, tonight we have a beautician uh she is a beautician a makeup artist she's a photographer she's a model there's so much to her yes and she's shaking her head and her name is Kimberly Shana Parker right uh, welcome to the Science Inside, Kimberly. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, so the reason I have you tonight is we are going to be tackling um, something in which you are really, um, you know, you are you are you are, you are really good in. Mm-hmm. You make up uh, people's faces. You make them feel good. You give them a face beat. A face beat, yes. but I'm sure that face beat actually makes them feel good it at does, the at the does. end of the day, right? It can transform you from actually an ugly duckling to a princess. I don't necessarily say that. We just enhance what's already there. Okay, all right. But we're going to be speaking to you just a bit later on in the show, and we're going to have um, Vivi Pasha, who is a product development specialist at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, that's the CSIR. And on Unscience tonight, we are going to learn about the sinister case of how Bitcoin is causing more carbon dioxide emissions in comparison to Las Vegas or Hamburg. And then in our final story, we're going to be hearing a story um, we're going to be hearing on an interview interview from Dr. Ngoza Lova from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. So right now we are going to go right into our news with Eva Chipa and we are going to go into our news right now. This is Science Headline. And with the news this week, we have Eva Chipa with us in the studio. How are you, Eva? I'm cool. How are you doing? I'm very well. Welcome to the Science Inside. So what do you have for the science 
news tonight? Well, in your news making headlines this week, a study finds um, shifts to renewable energy can drive up energy poverty and our brains appear uniquely tuned for musical pitch. Good evening, I'm Eva Chiba. According to a new study by Portland State University, efforts to shift away from fossil fuels to replace oil and coal with renewable energy sources can help reduce carbon emissions but do so at the expense of increased inequality. Assistant Professor of Sociology in PSU's College for Liberal Arts and Sciences, Julius McGee, and his co-author, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Vanderbilt University, Patrick Grainer, found in a study of 175 nations from 1990 to 2014 that renewable energy consumption reduces carbon emissions more effectively when it occurs in a context of increased inequality. Their findings published recently in the journal Energy Research and Social Science support previous claims by researchers who argue that renewable energy consumption may be indirectly driving energy poverty. Energy poverty is when a household has no or inadequate access to energy services such as heating, cooling, lighting and uses of appliances due to the combination of factors, for example low income, increasing utility rates and inefficient building and appliances. McGee explains that because the shift of renewable energy is done through incentives such as tax subsidies, this reduces energy costs for homeowners who can afford to install solar panels or energy-efficient appliances, but it also serves to drive up the prices of fossil fuel energy as utility companies seek to recapture losses. What this basically means is increased utility bills for the rest of the customers and for many low-income families, increased financial pressure which creates energy poverty. McGee says that we don't think of energy as a human right when it actually is because the things that consume the most energy in the household, such as heating, cooling and refrigeration, are the things of absolute need. Alternatively, in poorer nations, renewable sources of electricity have been used to elevate energy poverty. McGee said in rural areas found in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, a solar farm can give an agrarian community access to electricity that historically never had access to energy. The study recommends that policymakers consider implementing policy tools that are aimed at both reducing inequality and reducing emissions. McGee and Grainer said such policies would both incentivize the implementation of renewable energy resources, which also protect the populations that are most vulnerable to energy poverty. Moving right along to our next story. In the eternal search for understanding what makes us human, scientists found that our brains are more sensitive to pitch and the harmonic sounds we hear when listening to music than our evolutionary relative, the macaque monkey. The study funded in part by the National Institutes of Health highlights the promise of sound health, a joint project between the NIH and the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts that aims to understand the role of music in health. Senior author of the study published in Nature Neuroscience and investigating the NIH's intramural research program, Bevel Conway, says they found that a certain region of the brain has a stronger preference for sounds with pitch than the brain of a macaque monkey. The results raise the possibility that these sounds, which are embedded in speech and music, may have shaped the basic organization of the human brain. To test this, researchers played a series of harmonic sounds, or tones to healthy volunteers and monkeys. Meanwhile, functional magnetic resonance imaging, also known as fMRI, was used to monitor brain activity in response to the sounds. At first glance, the scans looked similar and confirmed previous studies. Maps of the auditory cortex of human and monkey brains had similar hotspots of activity, regardless of whether the sounds contained tones. However, when the researchers looked more closely at the data, they found evidence suggesting that the human brain was highly sensitive to tones. The human auditory cortex was much more responsive than the monkey cortex when they looked at the relative activity between tones and equivalent noisy sounds. They found that human and monkey brains had very similar responses to sounds in any given frequency range. When they added tonal structure to the sounds, some of these regions of the human brain became more responsive. Dr. Cornway explains that these results suggest that the macaque monkey may experience music and other sounds differently. In contrast, the macaque's experience of the visual world is probably very similar to humans.
This finding suggests that speech and music may have fundamentally changed the way the human brain processes pitch, which may also help explain why it's been so hard for scientists to train monkeys to perform auditory tasks that humans find relatively effortless, which indicates the usefulness of music therapy, which is an evidence-based clinical use of musical interventions used to improve stress relief to mental, emotional and behavioral problems. Recapping the top stories this hour, a study finds shifts to renewable energy can drive up energy poverty and our brains appear unlikely tuned for musical pitch. This week's news was sourced from Science Daily. Wow, thank you for the news, Eva. That was really um, insightful and I would just like to find out something from you because you are a resident of Soweto yes. and I know they have been experiencing uh, blackouts and, and things like that. And in the story, we just heard McGee saying, we never really think of energy as a human right, yeah, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, people need to refrigerate things. I mean, in the morning, you have to wake up and go to work and have a, a steamy hot bath, especially mm-hmm. at a time like this when it's winter, right? True. Uh, but, I mean... Um, Looking at this story, what what are your what are your views um, around this? Well, looking at the whole idea around energy, right? I think it's normally taken for granted in most spaces. But even when we do have it, it's actually overused. Because I know, for instance, if it's really cold, we'll sleep with the heater on because sure. it gets super cold, you know. Or I'm not sure if like fridges are supposed to be turned off at a specific time to save energy. So I think it's about being like. Um, aware of our energy consumption levels, but also, you know, actually trying to be more eco-friendly. But actually, what are your thoughts with uh, Soweto residents saying, hey, you know, ESCOM actually um, promised us some years ago that the, we, we would get electricity for free and now they are being, you know, forced to pay. And if they don't pay, obviously they they can't receive this free energy. But uh, I think it's, you know, an interesting conversation to have. True, because I know in my area specifically, we've been having protests occasionally um, due to um, power outages. And actually the municipality near home said that they're going to put these energy boxes that actually work with prepaid Mm-hmm. Um, prepaid um, electricity, which is a problem because the informal settlements actually use the street lights to actually connect. Yeah. So it's still a growing issue. Yeah, and those street light um, illegal operations are really very dangerous. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, thank you for the news update. And we're going to be chatting with you later on yeah. in Unscience? Definitely. Okay, cool. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You're still with The Science Inside. Now we are going into a conversation that I was alluding to earlier on, on beauty and the shady business behind acquiring some of the ingredients that are found in our cosmetic products. And tonight in the studio, we have Kimberly Shana Parker, who is a makeup artist, a hairstylist, and a model. And on the line, we have Vivi Pasha, who is a product development technician from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And she's also making strides in the field of cosmetics as um, a a technician. And she's worked with a couple of black-owned companies uh, through her expertise and has helped to develop safer products without compromising the quality of those products. Welcome to you both. Once more to you, uh, Kimberly. Hi, hi, hi. And good evening to you, uh, Vivi. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks. So let us begin with you, uh, Kimberly. So now, as I've mentioned, Vivi, I've got uh, Kimberly here in the studio and she's got this monster of a case (laughs) that has a whole lot of uh, makeup in it. And um, I've asked her now to bring some of these products, the the products that she uses the most, Mm -hmm. the products that she finds her confidence in. And uh, she has four is it four? No, five. Four. four. Yeah, she's got four on the table. So I'm going to um, ask you to mention what are these products, not the brand really, but I want us to. I want you to tell me what these products are, and after that, then we'll go into the ingredients because this is why we are actually having this chat tonight. Okay. So one of my first and favorite things is a good primer. So I have a primer over here. 
Um, then I have obviously my full coverage foundation, you know, for all the blemishes and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, a what? concealer. Concealer is a must in every everyday makeup. And then a good translucent powder. Okay. Yeah. So um, are brands important to you? Not necessarily. If I find a product like a drugstore product that works for me and is good on clients, I will continue using it. Okay. So there's, what's the pink one? This is the the primer. The primer. Yes. Okay. So I just want you to read maybe um, a couple of um, ingredients. Let's just say three on each. The first three on the, f- the, the three that you have here on the table. Alrighty. So on our primer, we've got glycerine, olea europea, olive fruit oil, and agar, and ammonium. Okay. And that is on your... That's on the primer. On our foundation, we've got... Wow. <laughs> are, they, are they difficult they words? They are very big words here. Okay. Um, we've got dimethason. Ooh. Mica, boron, nitrate. Yeah. Okay. On our concealer, it's very tiny. We've got water. We've got beeswax. We've got microcrystalline wax. Mm-hmm. And in our powder, ooh, okay, I don't, there's nothing on the powder. There's no ingredients. <laughs> no, I'm not seeing anything. Okay, and um, yeah, that is just something that is, um, that could be problematic. Oh, okay, I think it's just hidden underneath there. You need to oh, open okay. this tab over there, but it's fine. You don't have to open it. But Vivi, coming back to you, um, I know she didn't mention all of the ingredients in there, but um, what would you say in um, a product or let's say makeup products like the last one she mentioned, beeswax and... Mm-hmm. In um, the concealer. In the concealer. Mm-hmm. So she mentioned um, uh, water, beeswax. Should um, I've been told before that if a product has water to begin with, it's a healthier uh, option to go with and as far as you know treating African hair if a product has water as the first ingredient it goes to show that maybe some of the ingredients that follow are safer to use for maybe ethnic hair would you agree with those statements no not not quietly I would say that um, the ingredient listing on each product what it, it how they list it is they list them from the highest to the lowest. Mm-hmm. So usually when you see water listed as the first ingredient, it just says it, it is the, the highest um, ingredient in your formulation. It does not necessarily mean that the product is safer. However, if the product is, has a listing, then it shows that the, the cosmetic company or the formulator closing what's what in the product which is actually good so they are usually listed from the highest to the lowest and the the formulations that contain water in them what it says is is, is water is just a solvent it's a diluent you know to dilute all these other ingredients that formulate it and mm-hmm. or as a cream for example a makeup cream and a, a foundation for the cream to powder one you would have your wax too, that is your oil phase, and then you will also have the water phase. So combining those two ingredients might end up um, not um, mixing properly. Therefore, you add certain ingredients and so that both your phases, um, the water and the oil phase, you can bind together and stay stable during the period of use. So those um, statements, they do not really talk about the safety of the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the listing is the, the, the amount, basically. Okay. And um, ha- as far as reading the ingredients on our products, I mean, 
some of the products, some of the ingredients uh, on these labels, they were so difficult to pronounce. She couldn't mm. even uh, understand. So should we be holding these companies to account to say to them, look, we are the people who are using these products. So you should mention um, the things that are relatable to us or things that we can actually read and understand what they are. Because if I'm going to be reading like sodium uh, bicarbonate or whatever it is in the product, I'm not really sure what it is. Mm-hmm. I need to ha- firstly go and Google it first, and then. Uh, but then, when you do go to a supermarket, you not you don't necessarily have that time to you know introspect and check uh, if um, those products are safe. Mm-hmm. So, um, as far as the beauty industry, would you say that um, it's just it's just for practice to place these? Um, hard to pronounce names on our products or is can can we force them to change? Um, unfortunately we cannot force them to change the naming because that naming is, is an international nomenclature you know so that's how we name it globally so that when I'm in China or I'm in Japan or USA or Africa somewhere I'm able to, to know what this is the scientists would definitely know what, what that ingredient is. But it's those ingredients, um, remember before we have a final product, your cream or your lotion or your primer or your BB cream or any other product that you use, um, before you have it, it's a combination of certain ingredients. And prior to me, as the formulator, buying those ingredients and making a final product, I have to buy from different suppliers. So the supplier would give me a market name, you know, so they would have like their trade name. Yes. But then in the trade name, it's what their secret is, you know, like their secret ingredient. Let me say, um, I have this ingredient that is known to soften the skin, and I do not want anyone to go and um, uh, copy my formulation and make their own product, so I want to be unique. And then I would name my product maybe using a certain name, maybe my kid's name or my name or family name or whatever the business is, you know. Then we have what you call trade names for those ingredients. But then the, in, the, 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 the regulation requires all the people who are making this product to have a, an international naming that all, everyone will be able to recognize. So it's unfortunate for the consumers because, like you said, they do not know this Mm name. They wouldn't know what is dimensical. They wouldn't know what is sodium bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. It's only a few that will know. Yes. But um, it's actually wiser to do research before buying. And usually, um, the dodgy ingredients, I mean, say dodgy products, they wouldn't have the listing. Yes. Most of the time. But those that are listed, it shows that this, this company follows regulation because regulatory bodies require us to, to have a listing of this ingredient and what we call product claims, what the product does, the expiry date or the period of usage and the listing and the, and the quantities, you know. So if you see your, your, your product having all of those things, then it shows that the, the business might be legit. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. and um, I'm just going to go back to you, Kimberly. Do you check the expiry dates and do you check the ingredients of um, th- the products that you're using? Okay, so I don't necessarily look at the ingredients. I'll be pretty honest, but um, I do check if it's good for certain skin in terms of people that have eczema, people that have allergies. So I'll look for those type of signs. Expiry dates is a must because that could literally destroy somebody's skin so expiry dates is one of the most important things i look at and put you out of business i mean i don't need that yes <laughs> we're trying to go on right so vivi i've got um i've got my products that i've been using and um i'm going to reveal why we are talking about this in a couple of seconds but i was just appalled when i looked at all of these products so i'm just going to go uh, through them quickly i've got loose powder highlighter powder and um a bro kit here so the first three ingredients on the um, loose powder it's talc mica and 
Kawalin, and then the I the bro kit has talc, mica, magnesium, sterate, and then my highlighter lastly has talc, mica, and kaolin. This kaolin. Now the main reason I'm going to reveal why we are having really this chat about makeup is that. Just a couple of um, days ago, I came across this documentary that was showing that actually in India, there's about 22,000 children, young children who are mi- uh, mining Mika. Are you aware what Mika is? Kodali? I'm not even sure and I don't even know the story. Wow. Okay, I'm just going to um, um, just break it down uh, slightly and I'm sure... Um, Vivi will weigh in on this conversation now um, as you would have uh, realized that in all of these listings from the products that I'm using the one ingredient that kept creeping up each time is mica and uh, titanium dioxide is uh, mixed or used in conjunction with the the mica and titanium dioxide is a white pigment and mica is a mineral gleamer and they are both widely used in makeup not just in pure mineral makeup but uh, the word mica is actually derived from the Latin mecara, meaning to shine, to flash, or to glitter, which actually refers to a group of 37 crystalline minerals that have dozens of industrial applications and are also used to add shimmer to everything from car paints to, um, to cosmetics as we are speaking now but the main reason we are talking about this is that i mean 22,000 young children are mining this mika and children are actually dying for beauty and this is something that we are not even aware of Mm -hmm. did you know about i was very unaware of that completely i will be honest yeah so so this study or this research was being carried out heavily a lot um, last year but it hasn't been making news it's not something that came out in the news where you know we were informed that hey did you know young children are mining this product and I mean it's totally unnecessary Mm -hmm. I mean we can do without the 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 glitter and the shine right well (laughs) (laughs) she doesn't agree well it depends on where it comes from I know a lot of like animal cruelty free brands and brands that are very homeopathic they try and use the most natural products as possible so rather go for signage that's that states that it's safe to use no one was harmed in the process of making it yeah but a little glimmer yeah it's it's great that you mentioned animal cruelty Mm -hmm. but that's the thing i mean this is even it far I, according to me, it far outweighs animal and cruelty because now humans are involved, right? Mm-hmm. And apparently this mica can be manufactured um, synthetically in the lab. So I wanted to find out uh, from you, Vivi, is mica something that we can reconstruct in, in the lab and avoid the, you know, m- multiple deaths that are happening in India where young children are being killed uh, during this mining of this uh, ingredient? Mika is, is, is a mineral, you know, and it's a natural ingredient which which is, is found in the mine. Therefore, we cannot limit it and make it in the lab. But then it is safe to use. Um, according to certain studies that I've checked as well, Mika um, is, is perfectly safe, but there is side effects. You know, side effects that do not apply to to consumers like us and these are cosmetic consumers. It's only those side effects um, are applying to those that are mining it, hence the you know, because now the prolonged mining and exposure cause lung scaring and some of them would claim irritation to the skin. Actually, it's a matter of inhaling the product. So, for us as analysts, the use of liquor in cosmetics doesn't really have too much uh, number of cases reported. So there hasn't been any, I don't even know how to say this, there has not been any side effects. Like you said, the products that you have, most of them 
have recently as one of their So it's and it's used worldwide. But it's so unfortunate because those kids mind is there and it leads to death. And it's due to the prolonged exposure to this in this natural mineral. So I do not know if I answered your question. Um, yeah, um, well, I was excited uh, in a sense that I wanted to expose that, you know, there is this thing that is happening because, you know, in that doc- documentary, they were saying that children, I mean, these children are, are mining with their own hands. They don't even have equipment or safety wear that they are wearing because they come mm. from very underprivileged, impoverished villages where they get like a rupee or, or like not even a rupee like a couple of cents and they they live on that so they die from actual rocks falling on their heads uh, because yeah, they yeah. do not have any protective gear but the most important question for me is as a consumer is there something that i can do so that i can hold uh, the cosmetic industry accountable uh, so that uh, maybe I know that for one, as a consumer, I can say, look, I'm going to look at my ingredients or the ingredients on the products that I am going to use. And therefore, I am not going to buy any products that have Mika in it. Right. But then from an industrial perspective, um, can we what what else can we do? Can we ban the product? We can look at other alternatives. You know, but due to poverty, I think people would want to still go and work and get other things to do to get money, you know. Yes. But um, for, 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 for such ingredients such as makeup, the thing is, it has been reported that there's so many toxins, traces of toxins from this mineral, you know. Mm-hmm. So it could be that the death arises from... Touching it without wearing proper equipped protective equipment, like you said, and the longer exposure and inhaling of this, no plus is very fine. The particle size is very fine, and you can actually inhale and, and get reactions later. But what, I, what I'm saying is they, they require chemical processing to remove this toxin to get your actual final product, which is safer to use on the skin, you know. So it's probably because they do not even follow procedures. But I don't think we will be successful in trying to bring a certain ingredient unless it's a regulatory requirement. So there are regulatory bodies in other countries like America and Japan and the Chinese market. We have very um, regulatory also discard uh, some of the makeup let's say i decide right now that i do not want to use any of these products that mm-hmm. have mika in them uh, can i throw them in the bin or down the drain because we also want to be equal um eco-friendly and um mm-hmm. yeah and uh, protect our environment as well um yeah the, the best way to discard such products is to use the because the municipality or wherever the waste is managed, 
they didn't know what to how to sort the way sort their way according to organic and organic compounds sorted together. So when you discard um, when you discard your products down the drain, you actually affect the environment because whatever chemicals that are used to go down the environment, which is possible to the government stuff the water mm. and so that um, the water is set to safe the Okay, Vivi. Hi, thank you very much. Um, um, yeah, it's been um, it's been really great having you on the show. The only thing is that uh, the telephonic line is really terrible, and we are really badly mm-hmm. to yeah to hear you. Um, but I I heard the last parts where you were saying that we shouldn't throw our products down the drain because actually it affects um, the water sources as well because we do actually even. Um, clean out the water and then reuse it uh, for drinking purposes and cooking as well. But thank you so much for joining us on the Science Inside tonight. It has been a really insightful uh, show and I thank you for taking out the time to be with us tonight. Okay, thank you for having me. Okay then. Bye. Bye. Alright, uh, that was it. Uh, but uh, do you have any parting words, Kim? Um, I would just like people to be aware of like you said, the ingredients, you, you did enlighten me a lot on that. Um, but I like the fact that these industries do try and be as transparent as possible about the ingredients. It's just a matter of researching what it actually is. But yeah, people shouldn't hate on makeup though. <laughs> no, we're not making, we're not hating on makeup. We're just bringing it to the fore so that we no. hold cosmetic um, companies, companies accountable, accountable mm-hmm. as well. And I know there's a couple, plenty of them, I think three or four of them who are really big in the industry, yes. who have actually stood up and are running campaigns to help those uh, struggling uh, families within mm-hmm. uh, in India and are helping those people. But I would like to also thank you for coming, you know, into our studio and joining in on this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Okay. Thank you. This is the Science Inside. Science Inside. Hello and welcome back to the Science Inside. And next up, we are going into unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. It's time for unscience, where we look at the strangest side of research. And tonight, as always, we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time and money on. And today's unscience was produced by Eva Chipa. Good evening, Eva. Hey, Bridget. Yep, welcome back. Uh, so, what do you have for us on, on science tonight? Okay, so for today's in science, it took a look at something that we all know but would not expect. So, when you think of carbon dioxide emissions, what comes to mind? Well, the obvious things, climate change and, you know, um, the harmful carbon uh, gases mm-hmm. that are causing greenhouse uh, warming. Yep, and that's exactly my line of thought until I bumped into this article. Now, tell me, do you know of Bitcoin? Yeah, um, but what does Bitcoin have to do with carbon emissions and greenhouse (laughs) gases and stuff? Well, the use of Bitcoin causes around 22 megatons of carbon dioxide emissions annually, which is comparable to the total emissions of cities such as Hamburg or Las Vegas. Okay, are you serious? You you mean Bitcoin? Bitcoin, Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Bitcoin. But how is this possible then? So for the study, an interdisciplinary team of researchers at the Technical University of Munich analyzed data such as IPO filings of hardware manufacturers and the IP addresses of Bitcoin miners, which makes this research the most detailed analysis to date of the cryptocurrency's carbon footprint. Okay, but um, Bitcoin is a virtual currency, right? Mm -hmm. So how is it associated with something that is happening in our physical, um, physical space? Okay, so for a Bitcoin transfer to be executed and validated, an arbitrary computer in the global Bitcoin network solves a mathematical puzzle, right? The network which anyone can join rewards the puzzle solvers in Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's almost like a game. Sure. The computing capacity used in this process known as Bitcoin mining has increased rapidly in the recent years. And statistics show that it quadrupled in 2018 alone. 
Oh, so I see uh, that the the Bitcoin boom raises the question of whether the cryptocurrency is imposing an additional burden on um, the climate. Yes, exactly. So um, a team of management sciences and informatics researchers at the Technical University of Munich has carried out the detailed calculation of, of the Bitcoin system to date. So the team began by calculating the power consumption of the network, which depends primarily on the hardware used for Bitcoin mining. The study also had to consider whether the mining was being done by someone running just one miner at home or in one of the large-scale firms farms set up in recent years by professional operators. Mm-hmm. Head researcher on the project from the university, Christian Stoll, explains that in those farm-like operations, extra energy is needed just for cooling down the data center. To investigate the orders of magnitude involved, the team used statistics released by a public pool of different miners showing the computing power of its members. So what you're saying is that researchers analyze data from these farm operations because they would need a bigger cooling center, which means more hardware uh, is is used to Mm. produce all of these statistics. And I find this very interesting. But what does these statistics show? Okay, so researchers determined the annual electricity consumption by Bitcoin as November 2018 to be about 46 terawatts. 68% of computing power is located in Asia. All right, so how much of carbon dioxide is emitted when the energy is generated? And is there a specific place where the miners are located? Well, live tracking data from the mining pools provided the decisive information. Stahl says that in these groups, miners combine their computing power in order to get a quicker turn and reward for solving the puzzles, similar to people um, winning in lottery pools. Based on this data, the team was able to localize 68% of the Bitcoin network computing power in Asian countries, 17 in European countries, and 15% in North America. So um, the research concludes that the most carbon di- dioxide emissions from Bitcoin mining are in Asia. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the Bitcoin system has a carbon footprint of between 22 and 22.9 megatons per year, and 68% alone is in Asia. Wow, that is really amazing. So, naturally, there are bigger factors contributing to climate change. Mm. However, you're saying that the carbon footprint is big enough to make it worth discussing the possibility of regulating cryptocurrency mining in regions where power generation is especially carbon intensive. Yeah. Basically. Yep, that's basically what it is. So, it's unusual, it's unlikely, it's unscientific really unusual indeed but thank you so much for giving us that update i never really thought of uh, bitcoin in such a way maybe there are other things that we should be looking at that are happening on the internet but are affecting us in the physical sense true true but anyway thank you for joining us tonight we'll catch up with you again next week definitely okay thanks unusual Unlikely Unscience This is the Science Inside Welcome back to the Science Inside If you've just joined us We are in the second half of the show And we are going into a story which was covered earlier on About a condition which is becoming a common occurrence Especially among women of African descent Who are experiencing balding due to their genetic makeup And how the condition We're also going to be unpacking how the condition can also be treated But before we go into that We have just a short clip on how people used to stretch or relax their ethnic hair before and this is Meranya uh, Taina Ranyabu. Vaseline Leona Nerestra Chakayona Lelitapa. Unka Vaseline Utasa Vaseline Ingata Mutokunyakaho. Fakin Nervesa Malat. So Kamakarkastofo Muma Latin Mudimu Uvelitapa Lele Liloba Radiaka or Namalat. Mare asking great rate kahol. Setili futumeti then why U Sidi Lamuru Hout it a mumrizi tawa stretch half with a stretchile kalitap levaslin. And then next up we are going to find out from the University of Kwazulu Natal's um 
Professor Ngoza Lova, who's going to be speaking about a groundbreaking study called Variant PAD13 in central centrifugal kaikitriacal alopecia, which was published in the New England, England Journal of Medicine, which affects women of African descent. And this story was covered by Masibulele Lunika. Professor Ngoza Lova herself said this is probably the biggest breakthrough in South African dermatology. Her groundbreaking study in collaboration with other researchers titled Variant PAD13 in Central Centrifugal Cisotrial Alopecia was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the highest impact journals in medical science. She elaborates more on this research and what triggered it. Skin conditions and hair conditions are common. And I think we observed in the last 10, 15 years that we've seen the number of patients with hair loss compared to, you know, the early 80s. So what we found in some epidemiological study that we did in case again, we found that hair disorders were like now in the top five conditions that we're seeing, whereas in the past they were not even featured in the top 10 conditions that we're seeing. So we also started seeing this condition called central centrifugal secretorial alopecia, which is basically hair loss which occurs on the vertex of the scalp and is seen commonly in African women. So this condition has been described before for a long time. We would tell patients that we don't know precisely what's causing CCPA, as I have described it, as a progressive permanent hair loss condition affecting women of African descent between the ages of 30 and 65. So in the past, they used to call it a hot comb alopecia because it was diagnosed in a handful of women, African-Americans, I think in 1968. So they attributed it to be caused by the use of the head comb because the hot comb it was used for straightening hair so that it's easy to comb. So when we started seeing a number of patients with this, then we asked ourselves, and I think one or two patients that came to see us, and I realized that actually none of them had any history of use of any chemicals or any weeds or any hair extensions. So that's what uh, actually triggered the interest. So we did biopsies and then found that all the patients in this family had the same condition. But does this condition only affect people or women of African descent, one may wonder? And is there any explanation for why that is? Professor Ngoza Lova herself said this is probably the biggest breakthrough in South African dermatology. Her groundbreaking study in collaboration with other researchers titled Variant PAD13 in Central Centrifugal Cisotrial Alopecia was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the highest impact journals in medicine. Of course, this is a groundbreaking discovery for the scientific community and in medicine. Can you just talk us a little bit on what this means for the sciences and understanding this particular condition? Yeah, well, for us, it's great to know this because, as I mentioned now, instead of seeing these patients with this condition and say, you know, we don't know what's wrong with you, we are seeing it, but we can't, you know, uh, say what it causes now, we can affirmatively say it is a genetic condition, meaning that it is inherited uh, in certain certain families. And we can also say that uh, because some of the patients that we saw found that those were excessively grooming their hair, you know, relaxing their hair, using weave and braids and pulling their, their dreads. The condition was much more worse in those people compared to people who had, were manipulating their hair less often than those. So what we can say is that for sure we, it is, it is uh, genetic. And uh, if family members have this condition, they need to be extremely careful. Very interesting, Professor. And I guess the study would not have attracted interest had this condition not been that prevalent. And I'm saying this because I've also encountered it in some of my own family members. The hair loss is quite common in men, but can you just tell us a little bit more uh, about how common this is among African women? The prevalence is about ranges between 2.7% and 5.6%. It's much more common amongst African Americans. And in South Africa, a study that was done in Cape Town by Prof. Kumalo, it showed about 2.7%. Now, talking about the treatment available to prevent or cure it, I understand this is one of the first steps to actually finding it, and it may be a bit tough considering that it is, in fact, a genetic condition. But is there any available treatment at this point? 
if anyone has got a problem with hair loss, they need to see a hair specialist or dermatologist as soon as possible. Because once you lose your hair, you know, and your scalp is shiny, there's not much you can do because the hair root has been destroyed. So we always treat hair loss as an emergency in a way because we want to abort it and use treatment that can stop the treatment, the, the, the hair loss. So if we can... There are certain tablets and medications and creams and lotions that we can use, but those uh, uh, therapeutic interventions will not bring the hair that you have lost back, but it will stop the disease from progression. However, despite using those products, if a person or individual continues to groom the hair in the ways that I have mentioned, then the hair loss becomes more rapid and much more progressive and much more extensive. We are looking at research now to see whether we can find a test to be able to, so that we're able to detect this condition early and possibly look at some form of gene therapy and hopefully we will get to that stage. Of course, it's a small area and the disease is burned out, and meaning that it's not active anymore and uh, there's no inflammation. There, are, there is a possibility of doing hair transplant depending on the area, on the individual, the certain criteria that you have to meet. Unfortunately, you know, we will be able to actually uh, do hair transplant because we've just gone for the training. Uh, we'll be able to assist with that in certain individuals who could be advisable in. And out of curiosity, does this condition uh, actually lead up to any other additional health risks for individuals affected by it? There are no health risks really that are associated with hair loss except that it affects the the person, the individual, psychologically, and it affects the quality of life because it means the person who's lost their hair has to wear a wig all the time and they have to camouflage or you use dukes to cover, you know, the, the, the area of hair loss. Now, that is certainly good news that there are no additional health risks. Now, we chat to Tande Kamgoma, a housewife and a former teacher who has had first-hand encounter with CCCA and was also part of this study to get a better picture of how this affects women. Firstly, it's, it's, a, it's like a bit of a shock, especially if you had had a nice hair, you know. Now, all of a sudden, your hair is falling, becoming bold. Definitely, the confidence goes, and obviously now you always have to hide your head. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. I hope that this has been an informative and an eye-opening show as far as looking out for conscious and ethical uh, cosmetics in light of the discoveries that we have found out that over 22,000 young children are mining for mica in India. And this is something that shouldn't necessarily be done. It's something that we should be frowning down upon. But I hope that you have learned a thing or two from tonight's show. But that is all for this week. A big thank you to all of our guests who were featured on tonight's show, including Vivi Pasha and Professor Ngozalova, and obviously uh, Kimberly Sasha Parker. And our team behind the scenes is Eva Chipa, and tech is by Kutwano Serane. And uh, The Science Inside is produced by the Vids Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. That was all for tonight. Good night. This is the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.